This week on The Futurists, Josh Burnoff. We now have a tool that makes it extremely efficient to create hack-level writing. So if you are a writing hack, you are in big trouble because now we have an automated tool that creates hack-level writing. Well, hi there, and welcome back to yet another episode of The Futurists. Each week, we talk to someone who's busy inventing, building, and designing the future that they envision. And this week, we got a great guest for you. I'm joined this week by Brian Stillies. Hi, Brian. Good to see you again. Good to see you, Robert. How you been? Uh, you know, just uh, living the life of luxury in hotel rooms. <laughs> or or, or I could just say this is my podcast studio, my portable podcast studio. Nice. <laughs> nice. Very, very post-pandemic of you. And and this week, we've got an old friend and acquaintance, business colleague uh, that I'm very happy to reconnect with. It's someone I've wanted to book on the show for some time. And in fact, has a new book out, which we're going to talk about because it's very timely and it's relevant to our show. So here's a big welcome to Josh Burnoff. Josh, hi. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Hey, it's great to be here. And hey, I live my whole life in the future, so I'm really excited to talk about it. I know that. And by way of introduction, I want to explain that to people because um, those who are watching on video are going to notice that Josh prominently has displayed uh, a poster for Build a Better Business Book, which is which is his most recent book. And since Brian and I are both book authors, we're keenly interested in the subject. So we're for sure going to talk about that and you know, the kind of the future of the book publishing business. But what some people don't know is that Josh actually spent many years forecasting and projecting and analyzing the future when you were at Forrester Research. Tell us a little bit about your background at Forrester and how that got you into the book publishing business. Sure. Um, so the humiliating way to start is to say that uh, I got hired at Forrester to help them predict the future of CD-ROM. <laughs> so, after, this, was, this was in 1995. And uh, after a short time, they're like, you're not doing CD-ROM anymore because nobody gives a crap. Um, yeah. So, so uh, yes, I was an analyst there for 20 years. Uh, I actually focused for most of that time on the future of television so things like HDTV and streaming. Yeah. Uh, at one point, I made the prediction that the the, uh, the television schedule, as we know it, would be vaporized and we'd be watching everything on whatever schedule we wanted. Got people what a bold really, prediction. Well, got people in the industry really upset. And, you know, that's the one thing I was right about. I also said HDTV would fail. Oops. So, <laughs> so, and then, you know, we can talk about how these predictions work and why they don't work. Um, about halfway through my stint there, I tried to quit. And I said to the CEO, George Colony, I've loved working here, but I need to go and write books because that's what I've always wanted to do. And to his credit, he said, Why don't you write books for us? Mm. And Charlene Lee, another analyst there, and I had, had, noodled around with this idea of a book on social media so i said hey i could write a book with charlene lee on social media and george was like great do it well that book is the one you see behind me uh with the bright orange uh, bright yellow and green cover groundswell earth-shattering book on social media sold 150,000 copies and changed the way everybody thought about that and from that moment forward i was an author and i worked with other authors edited content and basically focused on books in the last 10 years of my career at Forrester, producing a total of five books, uh, three that I co-authored and two that I edited. Um, and so when I left there in in uh, 
2015, I focused exclusively on working with authors, mostly about books on marketing, on technology and, and the future. And that's what I've been doing since then. Hmm. And, and so in some respects, there's a real through line, it seems to me, in your career, because even when you were at Forrester as an analyst, part of your job was to interpret trends and, and kind of process them, analyze them, I guess, and then put them into written context that other people could easily understand. And so, uh, you know, the way I look at that is the world's coming at us in a series of short headlines. And if anything, that's accelerated in the last 20 years. So, you know, we're just inundated with headlines and they're grabber headlines, a lot of facts out of context, a lot of snippets of stories. Mm -hmm. It's pretty hard for most people to make sense of more than one or two subject areas that they're quite knowledgeable about. So generally, when we read the newspaper, it's a sort of flurry of, of news bits, but they're ripped out of context. So it's hard to understand what the bigger picture is. Uh, you know, right now, you could get, you think of examples of that from the war in the Ukraine, uh, the politics in Capitol Hill, whatever the heck is going on there, the sort of reality bending politics, but also things like climate change, climate science, uh, economic forecasting, the conflict with China or whatever relationship with China is. These things come at us in snippets. And what we tend to do is rely on someone who is knowledgeable or expert or has a time or, or perspective to assemble them into a narrative. And I, ideally, it's a narrative that we can accept, right? It either matches our bias or it's something that we're inclined to want to understand better. Uh, and so we'll go with that narrative. But that's a pretty powerful role, right? So whether you're doing it as a forecaster or an analyst for a, a forecasting firm or an, a book author, what you're doing is you're taking a lot of disparate information, a lot of disparate headlines, and you're kind of repackaging them into yeah. a narrative context. Did I get that right? Is that kind of the narrative, uh, the way it works? It's it's fantastic to talk to somebody who really understands this stuff, Robert. Yes, you got that exactly right. What we're the, trying to do on this show every the, week. The, the, the job <laughs> of the forester analyst is to, first of all, do a lot of research about what's really happening out there. So they basically are getting primary information from surveys and from talking to people about what is happening among practitioners in a given area. And then to analyze that, that's something people don't really understand what that means, but that means to assemble the information into a cohesive whole and figure out what it means. And then to talk about the significance of that, where it's going and what a, a client a business person in that situation needs to understand about the future so they can prepare for that future. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in some sense, it's not any different from what a science fiction writer does, except that a year and a half later, people can say you were right or you were wrong, right? But you're you're trying to see around corners. You're trying to look at not only at trends, but at how those trends intersect. You're trying to see when there's an event like the release of chat GPT that is going to change everything. And when there's some other event uh, that that everyone is all excited about that you say, no, no, that's not really the main point. Um, and to figure out what the significance is uh, and have a little bit longer view. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this is <laughs> when I came to to Forrester, this is actually sort of funny, um, right? I had been a CD-ROM developer and everyone kept talking about, well, you need to write about things that are strategic. And I'm like, uh-oh. I don't know what strategic means. What do they mean by strategic? I guess I got to like listen and figure it out. And then I figured it out. It's very simple. Strategic simply means actions that a company takes to prepare themselves for a future that's different from the current present. I'm like, oh, okay, that I can understand. And that's really what the what a uh, analyst or an author or a futurist really needs to do. 
So let me see. Let me play that back. So you're saying most companies, in a way, they're like on autopilot, right? Mm-hmm. Even as they do, like, let's say budgeting every year, sometime around September, this time of year, companies start thinking about next year's budget. And what most organizations tend to do is they just say, okay, we're going to do the same thing we did last year, but we're going to add 5% and submit that and see what the CFO says. Maybe we'll be lucky and get away with it. Or maybe they'll cut some 5% and we'll have to like figure out how to do a little different, but they don't really sit down and say, should we be doing a different thing entirely? And that's really hard. I mean, like look at Ford Motors launching uh, an electric version of the F-150 truck non-trivial right because you got a lot of motorheads in detroit a lot of people who love like internal combustion engines getting them to set aside 20 or 30 years of experience in that field and adopt basically what is it a rolling pc you know like a big computer on wheels that's a that's a big shift for them conceptually right to do that uh so that is what you're referring to as strategic thinking that's that's exactly right and um it's it's I'm going to I'm going to tell you something about predicting the future now, which is crucial for people to understand. It is really easy to predict the future. It is very hard to predict the timing. Oh, that's good. So so let's just take the electric vehicles that you're talking about. So suppose I make a prediction and I say uh, the future is a future in which uh, transportation is dominated by electric vehicles. Easy prediction to make, almost certainly correct. But if you're Ford Motor Company or if you are, um, you know, the 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 uh, city of New York or you are a company that makes components, you know, you make tires. Um, it's important to you to understand, is this going to happen next year? Is it yeah. going to happen five years from now? Is it going to happen 25 years from now? And the nature of these changes is that it's like it's small. You can ignore it. It's small, you can ignore it. It's small, it's small, but growing a little. So we'll sort of pay a little bit of attention to it. Oh crap, it's growing like mad and we're behind. And to yeah. figure out when that takes off is the hardest thing to do in prediction. And if you're in a big organization, there are an awful lot of people with a very strong vested interest. I mean, a financial interest in maintaining the status quo. Absolutely. So as you come in saying like, hey, here's the future. I'm pretty excited about it. It might be really good, but I have no data to tell me exactly when or how big this opportunity is going to be. There is dozens of people that come out of the woodwork to say, nope, he's wrong. You can ignore him. Don't worry about it. We got a really good business here. Why would we wreck it? I know this, uh, you probably can tell uh, from when I was at Sony Pictures, I was a consumer of your research at the time. I was a big fan and uh, we were very successful in the TV business in particular. And um, I kept saying, we need to make, make some serious changes here. Uh, and and there was a, a chorus of people, right? Not just the network people, but the people who sold the cable and the people who did syndication and, and so forth. Like there was an army of different people who would come forth out of the woodwork and say, ignore that guy. He's just the internet guy. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to tell you something, which I think is really their own peril about, about biases here. So all existing companies have a bias toward the status quo because that's what they're good at. You know, they're really efficient at it. And they, and they, it's like, uh, this is why Clayton Christensen wrote, wrote the innovators dilemma. It's about how hard it is for companies to change, but there's a bias among futurists and analysts too, which is always a bias toward change. So let's say you do a bunch of research and you decide that the market that you're, you're, covering is going to stay pretty much the way it currently has for the next five years. It's very hard to get people interested in a research report that says everything's going to stay the same. You don't have to do anything. Nobody wants to pay for that. (laughs) So it's always 
this thing is going to change. This is going to be different. This is going in a different direction. These are the things you need to invest in. And so they have a bias toward change. The companies have a bias toward stability. And somewhere in the middle there is the moment when the strategist at the company, somebody like you, Robert, needs to say, ah, this is when we have to start investing in this so that three years from now, when it's really big, we'll be prepared. But that's the that's the catch, right? So the three years from now is is the exactly difficult thing. So first of all, in any business, it takes 18 months to figure out what the heck you're going to do. And it takes a further 18 months to get that project off the ground. So three years is a good timeline. But if we asked our audience right now, the people who are listening to this show to think for a second about some of the trends that we've talked about, some of the futurists that we've interviewed on the show previously, and ask yourself, how soon is that going to be real? How soon is something like synthetic biology going to change uh, where we can actually manufacture plants that create things for us or tap the generative power of biology? We've been hearing about it since 2010 or maybe even earlier than that. Um, it doesn't seem like it's here. Well, hang on, though. Moderna, the vaccines, that yeah. actually was an example of it working. So maybe it's here, but it's here kind of in a peripheral way. Important if you're in pharma, I suppose, wow. but hard for most people to see yeah. how it's going to affect their own day-to-day -day life. And there's other examples of that. You know, you can think about the way we buy food or the, um, uh, you know, the way we consume energy in our own lives. At what point are we going to need to make a change? The funny thing is I'm talking to you in July of, of 2023 uh, when it's apparently the hottest the hottest year on rec in recorded history, right? by some measures, at least. Hey, it doesn't bother me. I moved to Maine. <laughs> right on. But you know, like, you know, everyone realizes <laughs> yeah. at some point we're going to have to change behavior, right? On this planet, mm -hmm. we're going to have to change the way we consume and the way we make stuff and the kind of energy we use and so forth. Those are big sweeping changes, right? And there'll be societal changes, not just an economic change or a, you know, a, a business change. And, um, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of resistance. You could say there is right already a tremendous amount of resistance mm -hmm. to it. So in a way, it's like a macro, uh, a macro example. But every individual in the, every company uh, who's thinking about the future has to deal with this on an individual yeah, or a micro is... basis as well. And yeah. Brian, you probably run into that as well, because you advise a lot of organizations to think about the future, right? Uh, do you had... run into resistance like that? It's it's the whole, it's, it's so much so that it's become the foundation for my next book. Uh, mm -hmm. It is taking a step back to, as Josh, you so wisely observed is everything's always a bias. And you know, when we talk about things like the Jedi mind trick, essentially in this case, it's how do you navigate that bias uh, for for seen or observed and unseen uh, opportunities to not just change, but to be better. So for example, in the climate change exa example that you were just talking about, we've known for a long time we need to do things differently. But our biases, in large part at a societal level, are preventing us from doing so, uh, just like it's the biases for a beverage you enjoy, like say Bud Light, uh, becomes instantly uh, something that you no longer enjoy just simply because of something that challenged your own bias against it. Uh, so the hardest part about this is getting people to open their mind willingly, uh, maybe on their own accord, to hear something differently in order to then consider it in what is in the best interest of them and those that they care about. And that humanization of this story uh, is is probably the hardest part. Josh, you know, one, one thing you taught me a long time ago, maybe you don't remember this, but uh, it was the whim exercise. Mm -hmm. And 
the whim exercise, uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, was something that's heavily practiced at Forcer, which is what yes, it means. they invented it, right? Yeah, and the what it means exercise is is really taking something. I, I try to use it as a as a way to help me navigate what it means beyond the bias or in consideration of a bias that I know I'm going to hit head on so that I can break it down into a conversation where someone can feel it as if they came to that conclusion themselves and not they weren't told it. Uh, and that was, I think, one of the big, I, I even tell that story in the next book about the, how that exercise I still practice today and in, in, in the understanding of then scenario planning around around biases. And just yeah, for clarification, what is WIM? What, what is the what it means exercise? It's, it's well, I can tell you for having done it all that time at Forrester, is um all analysts at all different companies and financial analysts, whatever, develop analysis, right? They they figure out what's gonna happen and what the the uh the sort of simplest way to describe those shifts is and how fast they're gonna happen. The whim, what it means is like, okay, let's assume that we're right about our prediction. What would that mean for where people work in offices? What would that mean for the amount that people get paid? What would that mean for the geopolitical differences between China and Europe and the United States? It's to to look for the non-obvious consequences of the conclusions you have and take things that extra step. Um you know the the report I wrote at Forrester that was a uh, the, uh, most popular, which was a you know about about looking at different ways that people consume technology. I showed that to my wife, who was an artist, because she didn't usually read the stuff that I I do, and uh, she was like, "Well, this is pretty good, but what was that wacko stuff at the end?" <laughs> and that wacko <laughs> stuff at that wacko stuff at the end is the whim. It's taking things out further. Okay. Um, and okay, and good so, and good luck, Brian, because you. I uh, I hope you don't get sued by Forrester for using that. So well, I I I tell I tell the story of how it's Forrester's IP uh, and try to protect myself of that. But okay. but it is, it is uh, it is a, it is a helpful exercise. Like for example, like uh, work work from home and uh, look look at San Francisco. You know, part of a whim exercise could could look at what would be the uh, economic impact of businesses in downtown San Francisco yeah. once people started to return to work. Exactly. Yeah, yeah no, in fact, government is incredibly bad at this. This is like a giant blind spot for government, right? We see the trends, uh, yeah. you know, they're they're very aware. They're the ones issuing the mandate to stay at home. So they know that people are staying at home, but then they don't take the next step and say, what well, will the impact be? This is... I, I had an interesting conversation with, um, here in Los Angeles, the, the um, county health commissioner, um, because she was, pushing, she continued to push these uh, stay-at-home orders. You may recall, California kept them for much longer than many other states in the U.S. during the pandemic. And I had a conversation with her. I said, gee, look, you know, our restaurants and local businesses are going out of business. Like, they're closing the doors. And chefs are moving to Nevada and Arizona and other states where they can be employed so they can, you know, get their kids in school and so forth. You do realize that there's an economic impact. She said, it's not my job. My job is to focus on the health standards. My uh, job is to wow. focus on making wow. sure that the infection rate continues to go yeah. down. Wow. And I'm going to do my job. And I was wow. like, okay, so you're going to chuck that over the fence to some other economic development group, you know, wow. who never stepped up. So this is a problem. And it's a kind of a blind spot or a thing that falls through the cracks. Uh, so I, I see that. You know, I think you give advice to writers, even in your book, Josh, about how to write the final chapter. I think you borrowed that win concept. And you're like, hey, here's a, here's a yeah. way. Wow. One technique for finishing your book is, uh, is to say what it means. Yeah, well, I 
I basically, in the book, tell people to structure things as the first chapter is to scare the crap out of each chapter about something that you have to pay attention to, because if you don't, bad things will happen or you will end up uh, competitively behind. Good advice for futurists here. uh, The the rest (laughs) of the, the book explains the details of that concept and what to do about it. And everyone's like, well, I don't know what to write in the last chapter. I'm like, that is the easiest chapter to write. Because if somebody's gotten to that point, they believe everything you've said before, so you can say whatever you want. And if they haven't gotten to that point and they gave up, it doesn't matter what you write. So uh, what you put in that last chapter is how can we go further with this? And I've actually done these sort of whim sessions with with people where I was working on uh, helping them with books and just say to their employees, get 10 or uh, 12 of them together and say, "What's here's the platform of what we believe. What's the wackiest things that could happen? And people who don't usually think that way will often come up with the most incredible ideas yeah. when you do that. Yeah, yeah, you give people liberty to kind of envision stuff. It's like a, it's like a brainstorming exercise. Yeah, I did that in my own book when I, uh, when I was writing Vaporized, uh, the idea that we're replacing physical stuff with software, and I asked myself that question. I was like, how do you end this book? I'm like, what's the maximum? Like, where can I push this concept as far into the future or into the improbable? And I decided, gee, I wonder if we can vaporize the human body. As it turns out, there are thousands of people working on that right now. You know, that idea of like replacing human biology with silicon and transferring human consciousness to a different substrate. And I ended up interviewing some of those folks, which were super fun interviews. And it made the book kind of fun. And I I recognize the point you're making, which is most people who buy a business book do not finish the business book. And as a result, it doesn't really matter what your final chapter says. You might as well have fun with it and and kind of go zoom out to the big, big picture there. Uh, Useful advice. Um, So, in, in our show, what we like to do in, at the end of the first uh, first half of the show is is get to know you as a person a little bit more. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, Josh, um, that are short questions. Uh, and just you know, okay. give us a quick, I'm short, to- quick answer. To- totally terrified right now. Go for okay. it. Okay. Uh, no, these are these are easy. These are easy. Yeah. Easy. Okay. This is uh, this is uh, usually something that's administered by Brett King, but he's traveling today, so I'm going to do the honors. And so this is the lightning round. Okay, so Josh, tell me, what is your first experience of science fiction, either a movie, a book, a comic book, or something like that? Uh, I loved reading science books when I was a kid, and when I ran out of stuff, you know, this is as like an eight- or nine-year-old, in the nonfiction part of the library, I said, oh, this Isaac Asimov guy wrote some stuff that's in the other part of the library. And it just was like, turned me loose on on the the amazing power of science fiction i've been a science fiction fan my whole life and the difference between what science fiction writers do and what analysts and futurists do is not that great so it's all a question of just characters that's the only difference right on on. and uh okay so so who is apart from isaac asimov who is a future thinker that has influenced you personally i you know uh i was very impressed with uh, Chris Anderson, um, you know, the long hmm. tail. Um, uh, these are people who I think are capable of seeing around corners. Uh, I'm, I'm, gosh, I, I, I'll, I'll just tell you right now. I, I just finished reading a book called The Nine uh, by by Phil Simon, which looks at nine big trends affecting the work workplace, and I'm like, okay, there's some powerful thinking right there about. Hmm. Uh, not just one thing or two things, but all these things that are changing the way that we work. 
Right on. Okay, cool. Um, is there a particular forecast that impressed you? Is there is there one prediction that you can point to where you're like, wow, this was really great work. This was very impressive work. Uh, you mean a prediction that I didn't personally make? Yeah, somebody else made. Or or one, yeah, it could be one that you made if you want to if you want to grandstand this. Uh, uh, now I have to say that um if you look at the people who who uh were involved with CRISPR and the the I don't know who made the predictions. So the people looked at that and said, well, that's gonna change everything. The moment that they sent the genome to the guy at, at Moderna, and the next day he's like, I have a vaccine, I'm like, holy crap, everything is completely different now. So uh, that's that's a great example of, of really being able to see into the future. Yeah, now they're trying to apply that technique to cancer and to other other maladies. So we'll see if they are able to sustain it. That's quite interesting. Okay, last quick question for you. Um, what do you think is the most important invention in the history of humanity? The most, the most important invention in the history of humanity was story. Oh, right on. <laughs> okay. So it's a bunch, a bunch of people sitting around a campfire, and one of them is trying to explain to the guy next to him about how we all got together and killed the mammoth and how great that was. Before story, they were just animals. After story, they were a clan. And, wow. you know, the internet sort of comes close to that in significance, right? But, yeah, it's true. It's but, true. Last week, we had Michael Margolis on the show, and he's uh, a professional storyteller. Yeah. And he said that the internet is the greatest personal story machine ever invented, the way for people yeah. to define their personal narrative. Yeah. Um, I have to tell you, when I was a child, um, when I was in high school, I had a friend uh, named uh, Eva Mockley, and her father was John Mockley who was one of the three guys who, excuse me, one of the two guys who invented ENIAC, the first digital computer. And I don't think, I mean, they were calculating trajectories of, of projectiles, you know, artillery, but I don't think they realized, hmm, this thing is going to be change everything and soon people will will have it on their wrist and be using it while they're sitting on the toilet i mean <laughs> and watch porn with it fabulous yeah. <laughs> um okay well you are listening to the futurists uh with brian solis and myself rob tersick and this week we're interviewing josh burnoff the author of build a better business book we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back so hang tight we'll see you in just a minute Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. All right, we're back. I'm Brian Solis, and I'm joining Rob Tersek uh, on The Futurists. And we are so we are so excited to have our friend Josh Burnoff on the show this week. Uh, Josh is a longtime friend uh, and a pioneer in so many things, uh, former analyst, uh, author. Uh, Josh, uh, actually, before I go to the next question, I was just thinking, uh, I remember attending 
your launch party in San Francisco for mm. Groundswell. And then I remember we got together in Redwood City uh, uh, for an interview uh, on on Groundswell. And that was a book on social media. Mm. And now you could almost you could almost take that what it means exercise and apply groundswell to generative AI. And uh, I know we're going to get into what AI means today uh, from that groundswell perspective. But before we go there, what does it mean to build a better business book? What 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 did you observe in terms of uh, generalities? What's missing from business books? As a business book author, uh, I, I am keenly interested uh in finishing my book in a better format yeah so uh i've now worked with 50 nonfiction authors on business books um and they kept making the same mistakes over and over and over again and I, i'm like no you can't do that no that's not how that works oh uh, you have writer's block no you don't i'm going to tell you why you, you think you have writer's block and so everything from how to conceive an idea to what can your book accomplish for you to how is the book constructed to how do you write a chapter? How do you do research? Um, what's it like to deal with publishers? Is there a way to do it without dealing with a publisher? Um, how do you make sure that you don't unintentionally include falsehoods in your book and how do you promote the book? These are all part of the process. And most of what's out there is like how to be a writer, which is fine. But there's so much more involved in researching and writing and promoting a business book that that I wanted people to have the benefit of that knowledge. The One other thing that was interesting in your book was that you bring up uh, the reasons why people write business books. Yes, and and I would imagine most people, if you ask them why do you write a business book, you know, their their idea is uh, to make money, right? But anyone who's written a book knows that's <laughs> that's really not okay. a great expectation to have. Yeah. What are well, the reasons well, why people write books? Um. So I. I asked people why they wrote books. I have a survey of uh, of over 200 business authors in in the book. And when I said, what were the reasons that you chose to write a book? The number one reason was to share the knowledge that I had. Mm -hmm. um, number two reason was to boost my reputation. But most people who write a business book feel like they've learned something and the rest of the world has to see it. And frankly, if that isn't the reason you're doing it, you're messed up. Um, if <laughs> If you're like, I'm going to be famous because I'm going to write a book, well, then you're not thinking about it right. You need to think about the people who are going to read this and how they're going to benefit from what knowledge that you've got. And, um, and I think the second biggest yeah. response was to boost reputation, which right. is they kind of go hand in hand, right? I'm going to share my knowledge uh -huh. and I'm going to thereby build, boost my reputation or yeah. establish myself as an expert. Yeah. And yes, that's absolutely the case. And that translates into benefits for the author. And it's different based on who the author is and what they do. If you're a consultant, that generates uh, people who uh, feel that you have credibility and want to work with you. If you're at a company, it might generate leads or uh, help boost the company's reputation. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're a public speaker, this fuels your public speaking career. Mm -hmm. So different goals for different people. Uh, definitely make money from the sale of books is not the best goal. And uh, I can tell you uh, right now, one month into the sales of my book, the sales are not anything that would light the world on fire. I'm very pleased with the results, but it's not going to get on any bestseller list. But I've already generated $100,000 in, in inbound consulting deals, mm -hmm. specifically because people said, 
I got to work with that guy. He wrote the book on this stuff. So hmm. that's that's in one month. Now, your mileage will vary, obviously, but mm-hmm. it was it was worth it from a, a financial perspective. But it's, it means a lot more to me to have a whole bunch of the other people who don't contact me say, oh, yeah, I actually learned a lot from that. You made things better for me. Yeah, for those who are listening, uh, I read the book. I um, I was I had an early review copy mm. of Josh's book, Build a Better Business Book, and I find it really, really practical. So it's filled with practical advice that, candidly, I wish somebody had given to me before I tried to write a book the first time around. Uh, and certainly I'm going to make use of it as I'm writing my next book right now because it's filled with practical information. It goes all the way through from the very earliest things, like why are you writing motivations and how to get started and how to name a, how to find a title uh, to lots and lots of great advice about the actual writing process, uh, chapters and chapters on useful nuggets of how to do that in a practical fashion. And then also what to do when the book is done. And this is another thing that authors don't realize when they embark on that big mission of writing a book. They think, oh, great, when I get the manuscript done, I'm done. Football in the end zone, touchdown, right? Uh, no, actually, the work starts then because then you have to promote the book. And that's a slog. And honestly, a lot of authors, myself included, at the end of the writing process, we're so exhausted. The last thing you want to do is get out there and write even more about the thing you've just exhaustively researched and written about. Uh, I'm sure you have to deal with that because you often help writers, right? When they're stuck, you have to deal oh, with yeah. that. You... Now, it's the, the my favorite story about that is uh, um, uh, about a woman named Curry Bodine, who together with Harley uh, Manning wrote a fantastic book on customer experience. And she was absolutely committed to having that book be great and perfect. And we we finished it. And we turned it into the publisher and she's like, I'm ready to start working on another one. I'm like, oh, no, 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 Carrie. Now we need to promote it. Now we need to get the word out about this. Now, now you have, there's always a pause of between two and five months between when you finish writing uh, and turn that in and when the book is actually published. And that's when you need to be planning. How will I make as many people as possible aware of what we have created here? Yeah. That's the problem. And that problem is getting harder because frankly, there's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of different media types. I and mean, Josh, when you and I got started in our careers, uh, social media was just a figment of the imagination. Mm-hmm. didn't really exist, right? There were only four big broadcast networks and a few dozen cable channels. Today, there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of ways to get content. Uh, you know, literally hundreds of millions of creators on social media, all fighting for scarce attention. So as a book author, uh, you know, your, your book isn't going to sell itself. You have to contemplate that a little bit. I think there's a lot of writers who would rather hide behind the book than become self-promoters, right? They're, we kind of look down on that. Some people who are writers look down on that. Uh, they look down on influencers. Uh, that seems sort of fake, right? And it seems sort of phony and they don't want to be that thing. And Brian, you deal with this, of course, too, because you're a phenomenal self-promoter. And I say that with utmost respect. Uh, how do you go about Bro. getting the word out? How do you get attention in a marketplace that's increasingly fragmented? I, I, I thank you for saying that. Uh, it's funny because I see myself as my worst marketer uh, because I, I, I don't. I don't do all the things that I would maybe say advise Josh to do on uh, marketing his book. I, I don't practice what I preach. Uh, so in that regard, I, I feel like I could be so much better. I, I, I think at the essence or in the essence of what I've tried to figure out is who am I trying to reach? What are they struggling with? 
Where do they go for information? What kind of questions do they ask? And who's filling those 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 gaps with what kind of advice? And so I've always reverse engineered all of this stuff. That process is incredibly harder today because of all of the different ways you can reach people. Uh, micro micro markets are are the macro markets now right uh, whether it's podcasts or 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 certain voices in social media or whether it's tiktok or whether it's instagram uh and 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 the, and the types of content that you have to reach people in terms of their their preferences of consumption it's it's outrageous in fact i've been anxious over this when I'm uh, getting when when I get to that stage, as Josh was talking about, like you've got to move into that promotion stage, I'm anxious about figuring this out for 2024 in terms of what it's actually going to take to even try to meet where I was last time with less effort. So uh, I guess it's it's a non-answer, but I I think the 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 only way to do this, if you really want to do it right, is to reverse engineer the people that you're trying to help. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's, they, useful to start, they, it's useful to start with audience in yeah. mind, right? When you write a book, that's the first thing a publisher is going to say, who's it for? And if you can't answer that question, you probably need to do some thinking before you put pen to paper. Uh, I I was told that appearing on your podcast was all I needed to do. So I'm, uh, yeah, it, no, that's for sure. True. <laughs> if, if this doesn't launch, if this doesn't uh, sell a lot of books, obviously somebody you told got the, the stamp of approval from the futurist. Yeah. Now, I mean, I mean. Uh, I have like a five-step process in the book. I won't go into the whole thing, but uh, three of the important elements are uh, reach. How are you going to get as many people as possible in the target market to hear about you by looking at all these different outlets that that Brian was talking about? Spread. What are you going to give them that they can share? Infographics, videos, blog posts, you know, what are you going to give them that that allows them if they like your book to tell other people about it? And T is timing. That's the last step is this all has to happen in a relatively short period of time around the book launch, because that's what makes sure that people hear about it over and over again. And that's what it takes to actually get them to tip over into reading the book and talking about it. It's certainly interesting when you look at social media streams today, um, the little video ads that pop up and sometimes, you know, they kind of figure out you're paying attention. So you see them quite often. I'm a former producer, so I'm always interested in like the technique here that's at work. And it is quite astonishing how um, people shoot their own videos so that they look real. Uh, they don't look produced. They don't look like commercials. They look like they're talking to you personally. And it seems sort of urgent. And somehow they figured out that it's relevant to you. And they're still selling a book. Uh, but they're doing such a convincing and persuasive job of making yeah. it sound like super relevant on a personal level to you. And they've stripped away all the pretense, all the all the slick production values and so forth uh, that make TV look kind of, you know, too polished to be, be real. Uh, now, now, Josh, one of the things I wanted to mention, because, you know, a moment ago we were talking to Brian and I were just chatting about how to cut through the noise, and how challenging that is. Um, but one of the things you point out in the book, you managed to cover ChatGPT just around the time you were finishing the manuscript, mm-hmm. ChatGPT debuted. Well, of course, now it's many months later and tons of people are using ChatGPT to, to crank out manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see that already. You know, Amazon self-publishing now is flooded with uh, with artificially generated books. Now, my personal feeling about these books is, unfortunately, they're they're pretty bad, right? They're pretty bland. 
Yeah. But not only that, they just add noise in the system because now you got to cut, you got to work around them, right? And and uh, yet I bet there's some people who are listening to this podcast right now who are thinking, I'm just going to have ChatGPT generate my book. So so let's have some words of caution for those folks. Okay, uh, Josh, what would you advise someone who says, hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go through the work of writing a book. I'm just going to work with ChatGPT to generate it. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, we now have a tool that makes it extremely efficient to create hack level writing. So if you are a writing hack, you are in big trouble because now we have an automated tool that creates hack level writing. Now, I don't happen to work with a lot of authors like that. In fact, if I find out that an author is like that, I'm like, I'm not for you. You need a hack level editor, right? But but what do authors, what do real authors have that ChatGPT doesn't have? In one word, wit, okay? And wit includes humor. Right. If you ever look at the kind of jokes that Chat GPT writes, you realize it's very bad at humor. But it also includes the shocking point of view. Um, I I was reading a uh, a uh, write up in the New York Times of the the Barbie movie, and the author cited this study that showed that uh, girls who played with Barbies actually had uh, less ambition. And girls who who didn't, even though Barbie has all these other jobs, and it said in comparison to uh, a control Mrs. Potato Head. And I was like, that is like my favorite sentence of the week, a control Mrs. Potato Head. Who would even think of putting that in there? And yet that author found that little nugget and said, I'm just going to drop that in there. And then you'll smile when you read that and you'll remember this. Now that's that's wit, and that's what ChatGPT can't do. That kind of wit and storytelling, and um, you know, it there's all sorts of ways that writers can use it to help summarize things, generate ideas, see if their writing is good, find errors in their writing. It's an excellent tool, but so is a spell checker. A spell checker doesn't make you a, a witty writer, and neither does ChatGPT. Right now, okay. So yeah, it can be a useful tool, right? Uh, one great. Wait, wait a minute. That I just gotta say that Josh, that was, that was so meta. I don't know that it, people actually picked up on that. You just demonstrated the difference between storytelling and wit and and ChatGPT with spell check reference. That was uh, that was well done. Well, what is spell check is about and grammar check now is about saying, I've read. A hundred million sentences, and your sentence doesn't match the hundred million sentences. And I think the problem here is that you left a word out. It's like, very good. Nice point. You're right. I did leave a word out. But if you want to write, if you want all your sentences to read like the hundred million sentences that came before, you're a hack. Yeah. So sorry, that's not good enough. Yeah, no, that's the biggest issue with uh, generative AI is it's a rearview mirror, right? It can it mm. can tell you very well what happened before and whether your stuff conforms to what happened before. If you're trying to do something different, it's not going to be that useful. Um, but what I was about to say a second ago is there's one really good technique. I think there's several probably for uh, using generative AI if you're trying to be original. Mm -hmm. um, one really handy way to use it is if I'm making an argument uh, on behalf of something, often I'm asked to do that, right? I'm not just an analyst, but people want to know my opinion about things. Um, I'll ask ChatGPT, what are all the arguments against my position? Mm -hmm. And it does a very good job of summarizing them. And you can go quite right. deep. You, know, you can keep, tell me more about that, right? And explain it to, like you would to a high school student or something. And so you can get quite a nuanced perspective uh, that will be opposing the antithesis view 
And that's great because if you want to preempt the antithesis in your argument, well, you now can be equipped with all of them, right? You can be, it's like a forecast. Uh, that, that's a useful way to use it. Uh, it's, it's better than a search engine. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you a way it can help you be creative. I did this exercise. So coming up with book titles is a really challenging thing to do. Um, and I tried to do an exercise the same that I would, as I would do with an author where I took existing books, I put the descriptions of the books in and I said, Hey, chat GPT, come up with titles for these books. And it would come up with 10 answers and nine of them were terrible. Yeah. Terrible. But the 10th one you looked at and you said, that's really interesting. Hmm. So as a brainstorming tool, it actually helps, but it has no idea which one's good and which one's not good. It's only the witty human that can look at that and say, oh, that's something interesting. You know, you're touching a really good point, which is you know, during brainstorming, we like to try to do two stages, right? The, the first part is where we're going to go wide and broad. We're not going to put mm -hmm. critical filters or, you know, criticize any ideas. All ideas are good. We just want to generate a lot of ideas. That's the generative phase. The second phase is where you're trying to trim it down, right? You're trying to converge on like the best ideas. And we're going to start to apply some critical thinking at that and that second stage. If you do that second stage too soon, you never get to all the good ideas. Mm -hmm. And the old adage is if you want to have good ideas, you have to have a lot of ideas. So in the generative stage, you want to just generate randomly and lots. And that's what these tools are good at. They generate. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> you literally have to say, stop generating. Like they'll just go on and on and on if you don't, if you don't stop them. So um I, I get that it can be useful there, but there's a little discipline and a little self-awareness required for the human involved because mm -hmm. you have to discern between good and bad or obvious and non-obvious. Uh, I don't know if everybody or, that or truth and in hallucination. <laughs> that's true too, right? Exactly. Oh, yes. Clever. Clever. <laughs> Now I'm here I, in Hollywood where like, just down the street, uh, the Netflix building, I can see it. It's right there down the hill from my house. And standing in front of that Netflix building are all, a lot of people with signs. So they are members of the Writers Guild and now the Actors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, and they're protesting. Uh, they are protesting uh, many things, uh, you know, the, the way they're paid and some of the conditions of work and so forth. But one of the most interesting complaints, and I think probably the most prescient, is uh, they are protesting against the proposed use of artificial intelligence uh, to generate screenplays or to generate literary material for a film. And also, more recently, the Writers Guild has raised the issue that they want to use generative AI to replace human actors. They just want to sample your face and voice and, and gestures, record that. Now, it should be noted, it is eminently capable of doing both of those things. Uh, ChatGPT or GPT-4 today can generate a, uh, a screenplay in the correct format. Um, it can actually, other, other tools can actually generate uh, synthetic characters. And we saw this recently with Harrison Ford in uh, the latest version of the Indiana Jones movie. You take a living actor, you can de-age him, right? So you can sort of like change him or modify him. It's not a huge step to imagine that uh, with a body actor, you could start to map his face and his voice to that body actor and you could replace the physical actor altogether. So these are not unwarranted fears. But Josh, I want to hear your opinion about okay. the future of creativity. Tell me about where this is heading. Is AI going to replace the entire creative industry? Do the, do the writers and the screen and the writers mm -hmm. guild or the actors in the screen actors guild do they need to be really concerned about this? Uh, yeah, they do. Um, uh, by the way, I just a little shout out here, which ironically is to Netflix. If you look at the, there's a Black Mirror episode on there right now called "Joan Is Awful," and it is centered around synthetic characters, synthetic actors, um, and is a really mind-blowing thing. It's so, self-referential and self-aware in a way that might uh, be self-defeating yeah, in the I, context I, of the strike. Uh, uh, yes. Well, um, since I'm such a fan of meta, I was, I was grooving along with that. But 
uh, and I by meta, I mean the idea of meta-ness. I don't mean meta, the organization, the company. So um, yes, I think that that uh, creative people, screenwriters are right to be concerned. It is impossible for them to block automation, just as it has always been impossible to block automation. Um, and uh, what I said about hack-level writing applies to hack-level screenwriting, too. Yeah. Um, you really think if if I put the plot of 10 uh, Marvel, Marvel Universe movies into a... a a chat bot and said, write another one like this, that it couldn't come up with a movie that, that you would look at and say, yeah, that's a Marvel movie. But, but, but in the end it would be soulless and it would suck. And to the extent that Hollywood continues to create soulless suckage for entertainment, the writers don't have that much of a role in creating soulless suckage. Chat GPT is good at it, yeah. but that just means that they need to get paid for the creative things that they do. And they need to understand how to take advantage of, of these tools. Um, and uh, they're right to now be using the strike as a mechanism to make sure that yeah. they get paid for their contributions, even when machines are part of what they do. And and listen, there are 70 million people in the United States who are self-employed in some fashion, either independent consultants like myself, freelance workers, gig economy workers, and so on, and they don't have a union. And so it's really important for people who are listening, if you're self-employed, these writers that are striking, that are living on their savings right now, they're not just striking on their behalf, they're making a stand for all working people who don't have a union to protect them. They're trying to draw a bright line that says, hey, we're going to be the ones to decide how and when to use automation in our profession. And for this, I think we owe them a debt of gratitude. I think that the writers are taking one on the chin for all the working people. The 11,000 members of the Writers Guild are actually making a stand for the 70 million self-employed workers. About 40% of the US workforce is self-employed. People don't realize that. So automation represents an unambiguous threat to most of those people in some form or fashion. And of course, you'll hear from people, other people we've interviewed on the show, who'll say, well, it's not really a threat, it's an opportunity if you grab a hold of it, if you learn how to use it, if you learn to make it a tool that you are good at, if you become a prompt engineer, whatever the heck that's supposed to mean, uh, sure, a job for 15 months until that gets automated. Um, I think that what we can say there is uh, uh, there is a monumental question that's being presented, which is what's the value of humanity and what's the value of human work? And how does our society uh, confer value on it? And do we all share that? And do we share that value in common? What I can tell you is that right now, the motion picture companies face an existential crisis. Their economics are upside down. Streaming does not pay the way cable TV paid. Uh, they cannot afford to continue to do their business the way they did in the past. Many, many people, hardly me as, uh, you know, as an outspoken uh, critic of the way Hollywood has operated for many years, but I'm hardly the only one saying that they need to rethink their business model where they can find a 50% cost reduction. Like seriously, across the board, they have to figure out a way to do this. So some form of automation is coming whether the guilds want it or not. This is why when I wrote about the subject on my own uh, Substack, I said, look, you know, the writers are right to strike. This is the time they need to do this, but they're doomed anyway. Because at the end of the day, this entire industry is gonna get automated. And I don't just mean the guilds or the writers or the workers. I also mean the executives, the development executives, the motion picture studios, and ultimately this whole process of distributing motion pictures. We're already seeing examples of how automation can work. You know, TikTok is by far the most interesting new social uh, phenomenon. But it's not really social media, textbook social media, it's algorithmic media. And uh, working for the algorithm is what you do if you're a TikTok creator. You're trying to guess what the algorithm is going to favor. So in a way, 
you're a biological robot that's dancing to the tune and the tune is created by an automated system. Uh, I think that's a really powerful portent for the future. What's your perspective on that, Josh? Uh, you really should write a book about that. It's too bad it'll be obsolete in 15 months. <laughs> that's why we're doing the blog. The blog is the new business book. <laughs> okay. Um, what's my perspective on that? Uh, you know, this is this is an epochal shift in the way everything gets created. Um, the way code gets created, the way graphics get created. But in fact, uh, if you don't learn to use these tools and turn them to your advantage, then yes, you're, you're, you're hosed. And that was true in some sense of the people who used to, you know, assemble automobiles by hand and were replaced by machines. Um, it's just that this is a, uh, usually the, the shocks to the system don't happen quite this abruptly. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, all I could say is, you know, if you are a human storyteller with a sense of wit and humor, you'll be able to find a way to survive. And uh, if you are a hack, then then, you know, learn to learn to drive an Uber. <laughs> of course, they're going to get replaced too. But at least for a little while, there'll be a job for them. <laughs> Great, <laughs> it's like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. Hey, I hey, Robert. Yeah, you know, something. Something you said too. Uh, I, I mean, I was, uh, I, I, I was really moved by by your sentiment, and I, I, it made me think. It's not just the seventy million entrepreneurs that they're they're taking it on the chin for. It's it's anyone who. It's anyone like copywriters, for example. Oh yeah, uh, marketers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th there, there, yeah. there are so many jobs. Yeah, agencies are doomed, and they don't have a guild to represent them. Right, so copywriters right. are in terrible shape, and everyone I know in advertising is panicking right now. Because honestly, if you're in a company and you're looking to cut costs, and what company isn't looking to cut costs? The first thing you do is you look at the marketing budget and you say, "We're paying that agency for what? Social media marketing agency? What are we doing with that?" automate that, you know, and, and uh, you can imagine someone's going to get that job in the company, like just get rid of the social media marketing department, replace it. So whether it's good or bad, my fear is that this is all going to be lousy. So we're going to be inundated yeah, yes, with crappy content, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. We're going to, we're going to be overrun with crap. And that's why the truly creative person is able to stand out. Yeah, that's, that's right. So, so, so it's not the first time in history that there's yeah. been a flood of content. And what typically happens is at that point, some kind of digest emerges. You know, someone finds a new opportunity, a business opportunity yeah. to kind of aggregate the best you, points of view you, and, and reorganize attention around that. Right. And if you can be, if you can find a way to aggregate attention in a world where the, there's a flood of cheap lookalike generated content out there, I think that's a good business opportunity. Yeah. The movie studios aren't going to do that. They're not set up to do that. Yeah. You, I don't know if you've had Jeff Jarvis on. He just wrote oh, a book, a, oh, a book yes, that yeah. draws a parallel between uh, Gutenberg's printing press and allowing an explosion of content and what's happening now. So uh, I'd be interested to hear his perspective on this. Yeah, that's, that's true. So that's his, he's uh, he's he's big on that Gutenberg theme. So yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's a good point. I will reach out to Jeff and do that. Well, Josh, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Uh, it's always fun to reconnect with you. It's been too long. Congrats on the success of your book. Tell us where people can find out more about Josh Burnoff. Okay. So uh, uh, if you go to burnoff.com, that's where everything I do is burnoff.com slash books. We'll get you to places where you can buy the book, burnoff.com. B-E-R-N-O-F-F. -F that's right. Right. B 
B-E-R-N-O-F-F.com. Uh, if you go to burnoff.com slash blog, I actually publish a substantive blog post every single weekday. Um, and literally today, uh, I just launched a newsletter on LinkedIn that's uh, for authors and, and writers. So if people want to oh, sign cool. up for that, they can yeah. get a, an update every week or two. I haven't decided on the frequency on stuff that's happening that you need to pay attention to. Well, maybe we should do a supplement to your book that's about how to use ChatGPT to write a better business book. Um, until then, folks, if there's anyone out there in the audience that's listening that is interested in a ghostwriter or an editor or someone to bounce a book concept off of, I know many, many executives who are thinking about writing a book. That's what Josh does. Uh, he has helped numerous authors, and I've recommended him to many, many people because he's superb at what he does. He will put you in book writing boot camp and make sure that you come out with a book that you can be proud of. Okay, so that's it for the Futurist this week. Uh, thank you very much to Brian Solis for joining me while he's on the road. Our co-host, Brett King, will be back. He's on the road as well. He's flying today. I'm Rob Tursick, and thanks again to Josh Burnoff. I want to thank the folks at Provoke Media to make who make the show possible. That's Kevin Hirshhorn, Lisbeth Severance, and the rest of the crew at Provoke. Thank you for doing it. And of course, I always like to thank our audience. Uh, we have some very, very uh, enthusiastic listeners, and we're thrilled about that. The show has been doing great, and we do appreciate your feedback, your suggestions, your questions, your comments and the people that you recommend as guest interviews. We'll be back next week with another interview from another futurist. So thanks for joining us on The Futurists this week, and we will see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.